Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well, staying positive and testing negative. Today, we hear from Chloe Rickard, partner, chief operating officer and executive producer at Jungle Entertainment in Australia, and Heath Kenny, chief content officer at Mercury Filmworks in Canada. With animation able to keep going relatively undisturbed in the pandemic, and many parts of Australia keeping coronavirus under control, Chloe and Heath are both ploughing ahead, busy with their production slates. I'll be speaking to them about how they're both looking to create original IP that travels the world. As one of the few non-US companies globally with three comedies concurrently on air with three different US networks and streamers, it's fair to say Sydney-based Jungle Entertainment has found a way to successfully crack the US. I spoke to the producer's partner, chief operating officer and executive producer Chloe Rickard about how No Activity, its comedy series about two detectives on a stakeout, which began life on Stan in Australia before being adapted in the US, is proving to be pandemic proof, with more remakes in the pipeline. I began by asking Chloe if there's any truth to the old adage that comedy doesn't travel. The stereotype of what one territory finds funny and another territory finds funny um, is somewhat dated. And I think shows out of the UK, especially in recent years, have really demonstrated that. Um, But I think for a show like No Activity, um, it's quite a simple setup and simple conceit. And every territory has their own cops and robbers show or their own crime genre. And so we sort of hang our hats on that and we're playing against type and satirising that really well-known genre. So there's something familiar uh, about no activity. The common person can really relate to hanging out and being bored and whether that's picking up the kids from school or whether that's an actor on a film set or whether that's a police officer in a stakeout. It's really a it's a universal state and the mundane is an excellent backdrop for comedy. I think the tone of it is lighthearted and the spirit of the comedy is always fun and, and this is really crucial because I think it's not mean and I think audiences uh, all over right now, especially given the context of COVID, are just looking to be reminded how to have fun again and, and how to laugh at themselves in situations. So I think those three pillars are what make no activity Um, universally appealing but just sort of winding back for a second the US show has certainly had a different development and production process to the Australian show for example they had a much more robust writing room and writing team and there's many more locations and the shoot schedule is is quite a bit longer in addition to the US um, we have um, been working across Europe on the format and um, we're working with Warner Brothers at the moment in six territories with confirmed productions in three. Um, We've also got a format in Belgium um, which is playing on streams which is a new escort service over there and No Activity will be one of its first original commissions and also in Germany we've been working with RTL Germany and um, it'll be launching on their streaming service TV now on 25th Feb. And um, Germany have already actually confirmed a second season before it's even aired, so so that's really cool news. Um, We're also working with OSN, who's just commissioned two seasons for their streaming service across the Middle East and North Africa. And what are some of the tweaks that have had to be made to to the format, given, you know, there are certain differences in sensibilities in comedy um, between a lot of those countries, you know, so it's 
the US, Australia, the Middle East, there's a lot of differences there. So how has the format been tweaked? So the format's been tweaked for each territory and the secret source is that um, we haven't been precious in terms of the actual words spoken and the, and the script gags. What's remained is, you know, very loosely sort of the show's title, the idea that there's no activity at the heart of what is going on and that the characters are just um, in conversation a lot of the time, you know, um, lamenting over their past or, you know, imagining their future or talking about love lost or, you know, just the mundane sort of intricacies of life. Um, But in each territory we've brought on comedic writers, comedic directors and comedic talent from that territory and they've been able to play around and ad-lib and come up with concepts and jokes that fit for their context within the framework of the show. Whilst there's definitely been significant um, tweaks for those um, specific territories, we've always kept the style of the show, so the idea that it's two-handers, um, the locations don't move around so much, but really it's it's ad-lib between brilliant comic performers and directors giving their cast the space to find that magic on set in many ways. And two-handers and barely any locations, that sounds like catnip to to buyers in a COVID world. So is that something you're, you're really emphasising and playing on? Absolutely. So we've sort of struck gold here because... In a COVID world, people are really looking to produce shows that can have contained situations, so studio shooting or minimal locations and smaller cast and crew if possible. And actually no activity was made like that in the first instance. So there's no compromises creatively or in the end product to to make this shoot, you know, something that works well for COVID. So we've really struck gold in that regard and it's been why... Um, many of the, the formats in in the um, subsequent territories have been able to go into production last year and this year. And is that something you're feeding into your development process at Jungle now? Because with the case of no activity, it's all that's happened organically. You know, this is a format that precedes the pandemic. How easy is it to to kind of feed that kind of bare bones production into development? At Jungle, we always like to start from the creative. So it comes from the idea first and the form and the idea are developed up together. So it's not so much um, paint by numbers. We did make another show for the ABC Squinters, which used a similar technique of reprojection and um, conversations in cars, basically. Um, but that's certainly not a model that Jungle are rolling out, you know, over and over. Um, we're actually very lucky in Australia to have you know, incredibly low COVID rates. So um, whilst we were halted in 2020, we we were able to get back into production and we finished season three of Mr Inbetween for FX, a new premium drama for the ABC and BBC Studios Wakefield and a feature doc. So for us, um, it's somewhat business as usual. And um, in addition to that, because many of the other territories worldwide are still having difficulties with the pandemic, Um, There's been lots of interest in Australia um, as a production location and um, there's a bit of a boom happening here. So I think because we've got world-class crews, because many of our wonderful Australian cast are home and um, also because of the recent government support and incentives, we've got a 30% offset happening here. I think it's really Australia's time. It's, 
you know, UK's had its time recently and I think it's it's our time now. The moment's, the moment's come and we've got all the talent here to be able to make worldwide shows. How do you think the pandemic is going to be framed in comedy? Because midway through and early on in 2020, we were hearing a lot that audiences, um, after a few months, were really tired of seeing things being shot on Zoom and we seem to have moved beyond that. But dealing and referencing the pandemic seems to be something that online comedy is, is doing a lot more than um, traditional broadcast and, and um, high-end streaming. Do you think that's going to continue or do you think there will be a kind of a breakout comedy hit based around the pandemic rather than, you know, there will be a lot of dramas you know, coming through inevitably. But how do you think comedy should approach the pandemic? It's a great question. None of our shows have specifically made comment on the pandemic as yet. Our show, Wakefield, is about mental health and mental health is one of the biggest things that I think globally we should be discussing right now. Um, So whilst, yeah, we haven't specifically dealt with the pandemic in inverted commas, I think the themes of connectedness, uh, being part of a community, being kind, um, you know, generous, laughing, I think all those things um, for us as a company is what's coming out of the pandemic and what we'll look to be making shows about. So it's more thematic-based rather than um, practically sort of creating a show on Zoom, I feel. And is that something you're hearing from buyers as well, you know, in terms of their demands and what they're looking for? Absolutely. So we're hearing a lot from buyers that lighter themes or levity are, are what people are looking for right now. Um, there's a lot of heavy stuff going on in the world. So I guess people want a bit of escapism from, from their content. Um, similarly, I, I also think that um, the pandemic has opened up opportunities for content from territories that are underexplored, such as Australia, um, with people not being able to travel internationally so much. There's a bit of um, audience voyeurism sort of there and I think now's the perfect time to be bringing those underrepresented territories and stories um, from around the globe to a global audience. So that's where the real opportunity lies, I think. Yeah, that kind of leads into my next question, which was about the focus on greater diversity, equity and inclusion that um, we're seeing really taking force in in the UK and the US um, after the events of 2020. Is that being mirrored down under as well? Yeah. So like the US, um, we're seeing some really good steps forward in terms of diversity, inclusion and equity in Australia. And um, at the same time, also acknowledging that we've got a long way to go as as do the US but um, when I was made partner at Jungle I've been lucky enough to be involved in our process of you know really exploring how we can embody these values in our development in our crews in our casting process and um, uh, we're already sort of seeing results. Um, Locally though the ABC has actually just announced a diversity and inclusion policy um, which is pretty um, pretty straight up like some of the, the requirements that they're um, demanding of their producers going forward are really going to move the industry forward here. So I'm very much looking forward to working with the ABC under these guidelines in the future. And there's a big debate raging in Australia at the moment. You know, we're seeing Facebook go head to head with the Australian government in terms of, you know, um, the involvement of US players in 
Australian media in terms of the the involvement of streamers how are streamers shaking up the Australian industry yeah so I think you're right the streamers have really shaken up the industry here I look back even five years ago and I I think that um, we were very much making content for the local market and then our specifically at Jungle our strategy was to sell that format worldwide that's changed now we like Mr in between are wanting to make Australian shows for the world and the streamers have really unlocked that potential. Um, We have had Netflix arrive here and we've also got Amazon here and there's more sort of popping up um, and about to pop up. And I think um, it will be part of Australia's journey onto the world stage. So their commissioning agendas are different from the domestic networks here And the content, I think, will start to be more and more uh, creative and specific and um, globally focused, but also leaning very much into Australia's unique point of view and, you know, the specificity of, uh, you know, of our region, including Indigenous stories. Chloe Ricard. Since the late 1990s, Canada's Mercury Filmworks has made its name in service animation, providing work for some of the biggest names in the industry, including Disney, Netflix, Apple TV+, Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon. A push into original IP has been in the pipeline since as far back as 2011, but the company took a major step towards its goal of producing its own shows when it hired Heath Kenny, a former Gaumont creative executive, as its chief content officer in early 2019. The company has now announced some of the new shows on its slate, which have been developed alongside its in-house animators and creatives, including one idea for four to six-year-olds from Heath himself, based on his childhood growing up in New Zealand. I spoke to Heath, who's now based in Ottawa, Canada, about creating an environment conducive to a push into original IP, determining whether there's a genuine appetite for your show in the marketplace, and why Martin Scorsese's hatred of the word content may be misplaced. And it's a reflection of, as you pointed out, our movement to originals. And, and that's something that's, that's, you know, it hasn't happened overnight. It's certainly something that's been coming for some time. And, you know, I first came in contact with Mercury on a co-production when I was based in Paris called Atomic Puppet. And even then talking to Clint, uh, the founder, and a few other folks like Chantal Ling, we, we were talking about like, you know, how does, how, what that looked like if we were doing more originals and, and starting to create our own sort of content. Um, and, you know, many years later, I finally get to join the team and we get to sort of look at how we could build that as a, as a strategy. So um, I started to focus on like internally who are our uh, storytellers and and how can we sort of create a, an environment where people feel comfortable and safe to sort of bring their ideas forward. Uh, and it was through that process uh, that we started to identify, you know, some potential like, you know, projects or ideas that could become projects. And uh and two years later, we're yeah, we're finally able to announce some things. And and the goal there is to is to continue to grow as a company and to continue to build opportunities within the company for our employees, uh, and hopefully also attract other types of um, you know partners that want to come on board and, and do other things that uh, that involve like building you know stories from from the ground up and and exercising another part of our creative muscle. And so, is it as much about developing people? as much as developing ideas it, it, when it's when you're looking to move into original IP, having done service work and for some of the biggest players out there? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great way of putting it. It's, 
it's one of those things that I, I feel like in terms of like the, the sort of ideal process is to start by developing people before projects. And so that was, yeah, certainly our focus. And it has to be about the well-being of the company holistically and not just an opportunistic thing. So that's why we're trying to get into it slow and and allow our people to, to sort of you know have that time to figure things out, right? Because I think that when you're doing anything that's genuinely innovative or entrepreneurial, there has to be room to fail and experiment. And and that experimentation will lead to more like interesting propositions. And that's that's something we've been going through in the last few years is trying to you know, allow people some sort of time to play and figure things out and, and experiment a little bit more. And that's led to the current slate that we've been announcing and the projects that we've been pushing forward because they seem to have you know, somewhat risen to the top and, and they feel like they're the most presentable. Um, and also, I think it's it's a reflection of, of where the studio is currently at. And the pandemic aside, there was a lot of disruption in the kids industry in the over the past few years and a power shift, you know, towards streaming given the way kids watch content is there a sense in the kids industry now that the kind of levels are starting to to be seen now in in the sense that streaming is now basically the the de facto place you go when you bring when you're taking a new show yeah i think i think that's um obviously it's it's the reality for everybody that's that's looking to create original ip and and you know finance it and get it out there um that we have to ask these questions and we have to like address this shift in the marketplace but as you say it's like the dust is somewhat settled and you know things are falling into place but I think that when you're trying to figure out again from a holistic point of view what is best for a given property um, and what is the best kind of deal structure for it to really kind of flourish um, there's a lot of things to take into account so the broadcast partner that you choose I don't think it's necessarily about like, you know, what is the best consummation model or what how people are consuming their content. Um, that's 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 an element that feeds into it. But ultimately you're looking at, okay, what is going to give this the most exposure? You know, if I'm trying to make sure that, you know, I want to be able to sell this on and manage these rights in an active way rather than a passive way, maybe I want to sell this into some more public broadcasters or an Avod platform or, or somewhat different. Uh, strategy in terms of how I manage the rights and manage the life of this property. Or maybe I'm looking at like, you know, I just want to get this on a, a really high-end uh, platform that's going to, you know, push this and and roll the dice on this property's chance. But then if it doesn't work, then, you know, you may not see that property again, it might disappear into the ether somewhat. So there's there's different things to weigh up, like in terms of like the life, life cycle of a property and what your aspirations are. Like uh, it's going to, depend I think a lot on where you're based and what your kind of like development culture looks like because I think like Canada is not the same as the US, the US is not the same as Europe and Europe can be broken into multiple different pieces as well if you look at France versus the UK and then we can talk about the rest of the world but I think it really depends on where you're like geographically based, what your market looks like and then what's your relationship to the rest of the world and how you aspire to manage your you know your intellectual properties in terms of rights and you've got a personal connection to to one of the shows that's been developed um so tell me a bit about that and it, within that process of developing obviously it's a balance between creative and that, that always has to come first but also having one eye on the marketplace and where it's going to fit in so when you're developing an idea how do you balance those two two things that's a great question i um i have a very specific way of doing it because just because I had to, like when I, when I uh, 
was my previous role at Gumal. You know, we were developing a lot of different uh, properties. And when I uh, ended up, you know, transitioning to independent, you know, you, you have a lot less resources and you have suddenly you're by yourself and you're trying to, to, to figure things out. So, you know, I've always been a big believer in trying to test early and figure out, is there a, a kind of quote unquote product market fit with your, with your idea? Because like having an idea is, is great or so well and good, but you need to make sure that there's an appetite for that in the marketplace and an opportunity, opportunity to genuinely get finance and made. So what I tend to do is I take it to market as early as possible and test it to see, okay, what parts of it are people interested in? And is there an appetite for this kind of thing? And Hangers of Puddle Peak was one of those shows that I tested as an independent very, very early. And um, there was actually surprisingly a, a large amount of interest for that particular property. I took like 10 different ideas and to MIP actually. And, uh, and I was just talking to people and sort of whisper pitching, I guess is the, is the industry term. I was kind of whisper pitching these things, but I had these little like storyboarded presentations and uh, of 10 different ideas and, and that one really popped. And so, so then I just started to develop it more. And then I spoke to, to Mercury about it as well. And, and they were interested in, in, in learning more about it. And at the time it was actually called Unicorn Cove and it, it, it evolved a lot over that, uh, uh, over that you know, period of time that followed uh, as we started to sort of shape it to reflect a little bit uh, more about what the market was looking for. But also uh, the writers that I work with, Julian Scott, they were really great partners in terms of keeping me honest to the, the origin story. And they, they kind of challenged me on about like, you know, we need to make sure this is authentic and maybe we should dive back into your original story of, of when you were growing up in New Zealand and, and, you know, this shouldn't necessarily be a unicorn and we should stick with the original characters that you invented and actually bamboozled your cousins into believing actually existed these things called pangors. And so, so it was about really like, you know, shaping it yes for the market, but also, you know, remembering to make, remain authentic to the original story, the original source material. Yeah, because there is that kind of purist out there who would kind of balk at the idea of molding anything to a marketplace. And of course, uh, yeah, absolutely. Even, you know, we've got, um, I think Martin Scorsese was saying this month about, you know, he hates the word content and, and, um, you know, content is a word we use a lot. It's in your, your job title. So is there a bit of a kind of, I don't know what the, the phrase is, but, um, a chasm between certain parts of the industry and, and how people look at certain ideas. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, having worked in France for a long time, there's like, there's this uncompromising kind of like rebellious kind of like, I'm an auteur, I'm a, I'm a creator. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not selling shoes or I'm not selling cars here. I'm, you know, I'm creating a, a specific vision, which I think is, which is true. But, but at the same time, you know, we can all have very passionate hobbies, but if we want to actually like build a, a career out of it or, or a business out of it, then we are somewhat uh, obliged to listen to the market. However, I think if you start pandering to it, then you have very little to offer. Uh, I think you really need to, to be honest about the fact that the only thing that really is going to resonate with an audience is an honest story that has strong, clear human themes, right? So that's one of the things that I, I have to remind myself constantly and I'm constantly reminding our creators is that, you know, ultimately we're telling stories first and foremost. And then if someone's interested in that type of story and that specific thing, then we can talk to them about how we partner on that. But we're looking for partners that want to tell the same story or want to dream the same dream. We're not looking at trying to like, you know, completely, you know, 
you know, reshape something till it's unrecognizably not our show anymore. Like that, I think nobody wins. Like the broadcast platform doesn't win. You as a producer don't win and the creators certainly don't win. So, so I think at some point it's okay to say that no one's interested in this particular story or this particular show. And that's okay. That's totally okay. And we can just walk away and move on. And that's why I think it's better to test early, find out if no one's interested. It doesn't mean it's a terrible thing. It just means that maybe the timing is bad or, or it's not something that people are looking for right now. But it, I don't think you should then like distort it into something that it's not meant to be. And we haven't really mentioned the pandemic yet, but I suppose is that because the pandemic hasn't affected animation in lots of the ways it's affected other parts of the industry? How is it impacting what, what you do? Yeah, it's obviously a, a massive uh, influence on everything that's happening right now. On the sort of opportunistic side of it, it's made animation kind of the talk of the town. It's like it's trending a little bit now because people are like, oh, you know, you can you can keep producing animation, whereas live action's had to sort of slow down, even though I think there's been, there's been adjustments made there too. But I, th- I think that for, for us, the biggest thing is that, you know, we work in a, a people kind of centric and, and human focused industry. Animation is a, is a collaborative thing, I think, more so than anything else I can think of. Like there are so many people. It's literally where industry and, and artistry like meets, where the rubber hits the road, right? So there's, there's all these people that contribute to making these shows. And that energy and that connectivity between human beings uh, is like a big piece of the alchemy that makes animation so special. You know, and I've worked in animation studios all over the world and there, there's something that really brings people together, whether it's in India, China, the UK, like in London or, or Paris, or even here in Canada or in the US, there's something that brings us all together. And like having that connectivity and that presence being together, uh, that makes studios, like big studios, special places to be. And so for me to, to be in a studio like Mercury Filmworks and not have that energy and those people, there's a sadness around that. It's not the same energy, you know? And so, so that's something that, you know, we, we've tried to protect and try to keep people connected. And the, the, the sort of the struggles that I was having when I was working from Paris uh, with the studio here in, in Canada uh, have actually been a, a really great learning curve for us because that technology and that way of collaborating, uh, we, we run a lot of virtual workshops, online workshops, just because I wasn't here. Like that's actually ended up being a really great skill set to have learned and honed over the, the last sort of three years. And it's it's benefited us enormously in terms of working, you know, continuing to work during this pandemic. It's allowed us to not really skip a beat and keep going. However, you know, uh, you know I'm currently in the studio today and, and we've managed to sort of try to keep that, that connection going because I, I feel like psychologically it's really important that we're all still together even though we're apart. And how are you expecting the industry to change over the next three years that's a it's a big question and it's obviously everything's very hard to predict at the moment but yeah how do you see some of the uh, the ways we work now kind of carrying on and and how will it change well I, I think that uh I definitely think that I'm banking on the fact that there'll be more virtual collaboration there'll be more uh I, I think pitching on zoom and having these kind of like virtual collaborations is it's, it's not the uh, perfect way to do it, but I do think it's something that's more acceptable than it ever was. So I think that's something that we'll see more of. Like, I don't think it'll replace like the face-to-face stuff, but I do think it'll be something that we will have to get used to. Like, as you can see here, I'm currently in like a space that's dedicated to doing this. So I can just show you quickly that I, you know, I, I have my presentation ready to go. I can switch to a whiteboard and I can run like a, it's just over here. So I can switch to a whiteboard and explain things really quickly. Um, if we're doing workshops 
And then I can also switch to a, a, a virtual whiteboard, which allows me to collaborate with I'm doing a workshop. So, so this stuff, um, having a setup that's dedicated to that, allowing to keep your teams connected and keep people connected despite distance, I think it's it's going to become something that's normal for everybody. And, and certainly for us, we've had to lean into it just to make sure that we can, you know, we can still be connected even though we're apart. And I think that's going to have it's going to sit into part of the way we work. Um, however, I still I think in-person workshops and, and in-person like creative work is still like you know desirable. It's definitely the thing I prefer. But I think you just have to lean into that other stuff. And then in terms of the uh, the way content is being you know, consumed and therefore financed, I think that uh, the reality is that things are shifting. Like uh, things have been accelerated because of this pandemic, uh, and things that were kind of naturally moving anyway, I, I think have just been really accelerated. So. So I think that the deal structure and the way that we get things financed, it's there's a big question that needs to be answered and the distribution models are all changing. So so I think the, the, the kind of chip's been thrown into the air a little bit and like it's up to us now to figure out what the what the appropriate solution is so that we can re, we can survive as independent. And on that virtual element, I was write, uh, reading something you'd written a few years ago about taking creatives to MIP and allowing them to see the, the marketplace essentially, you know, when you go yes, to the Palais. You see the competition to do that would you couldn't do that with every creative um or creator behind a show take them all to to mip junior that would be quite an expensive bill but i suppose the benefit of zoom is in the in your pitches are you now being being able to bring in the creators a lot more and introducing them to buyers 100 and and i think that even like recently um you know the the children's media conference uh in the uk they ran a one-day event which which we actually you know, bought some passes to and and had some folks just watching it. Um, and uh, I think it was really beneficial for them to, to hear some broadcasters speak and to and to see like, you know, what the market actually looks like. Because again, I think it's like, we're in a human industry and and, and creators also need to have some empathy for, for what the reality of, of our broadcast partners is. And they need to understand that we're a team. And, you know, when you, when you commit to working with a, uh, uh, exploitation or broadcast partner then you you need to be able to like work with them as a team and as partners they become a member of your team rather than suddenly it's a client sort of like creator relationships like you're a team and you're working for this you know this production and you're trying to make sure that this thing can flourish and grow and be the best thing it could possibly be and i think that attitude uh is only fostered when people can see what what these markets look like and what they what they really mean to the to the life and the longevity of a property um, but again, you can't just throw someone into that because the cultural clash can be huge. I remember the first time I went to MIP, I was like completely bamboozled and my head was spinning. I was like, what's going on here? So, so I think that, you know, you have to, you know, you have to nurture people and, and take them, take them through the process in a, in a, in a, re- in a responsible way. Otherwise, you know, people can get jaded pretty quick too. Where it's like, oh God, this is like a massive, like the boat show or whatever. Like people are just selling like hundreds of shows at once. What the hell's going on here? So it can be a little bit like scary and frightening at first, but but the, the markets are changing as well. They're much more, I think, creator friendly now than they ever were. Heath Kenny. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and on social media.